Well, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it to Acts chapter 4. We're going to move on into Acts chapter 5 today, but Acts chapter 4, and we're going to start in verse 32. And uh, as you are getting ready to see, this is a wild one. Uh, as many of them are in the book of Acts, but brace yourselves. Uh, I'm going to read the passage to us, and then we will just jump right in, okay? And you'll see as we read it why, uh, why this one uh, is fun, okay? So Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need." Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Chapter 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God." When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. No kidding. Great fear. Now, some of you, uh, great fear as I preach, as I approach this message, some of you know that uh, a guy named, a preacher, author named Tim Keller has had a big influence on me in my last decade or so of, of, of pastoring and, and preaching. And so this week, as I began to prayer, prepare for this message, I went to Tim's website to see what, what has Keller done on this. And I noticed as I went to his website that when he got to Acts chapter 5, it was somebody else preaching besides him. And so I went ahead and listened to it, even though it wasn't Tim, and he began his message by saying, yeah, Tim is out of town this week. And I thought, well played, Tim, well played. (laughs) Nevertheless, we will uh, 
tackle it as difficult as it is. Um, We've seen, as we've been about this series called Dwell, that the Holy Spirit has come to dwell among us. That if you have begun to follow Jesus, the third person of, of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, indwells us. He lives within us to guide us and to empower us. And not only does the Holy Spirit come in Acts chapter 2, but also he forms this church. The Holy Spirit forms this church of fellow believers, a new family, a new generation, a new community who are following after our Lord and Savior Jesus. So we are indwelled by the Spirit, and then as we are indwelled by the Spirit, we are, we are formed, we are given to this new family, this new community called the church. And as a church, we are to dwell with one another and to, to support one another and even to share with one another as this passage uh, gets to this morning. And what we see is, is as God is moving throughout this newly formed church, there begins to be the work of the enemy, Satan, there is an enemy, and he begins to work against what God is doing through the Holy Spirit, what God is doing through the church. And the enemy's methods, the enemy's strategy changes, but as we saw last week in Acts chapters 3 and 4, his first strategy, the enemy's strategy at the beginning, was to uh, attack the church from the outside through persecution. But as we get to the end of chapter 4 and in, on into chapter 5, Satan's strategy changes from the outside to the inside. And now Satan's strategy is, is not just persecution from without, but corruption from within. If he can't get the world to beat us down, then he can compromise the church from inside. And that's what we find here in this story of Ananias and Sapphira. Now, uh, just backing up a little bit of context, we should probably read verse 31 along with verse 32 in chapter 4 because it kind of leads into what we experience here in this story. Verse 31 says this. This isn't on the screen, but look along with me. Uh, verse 31 talks about being filled with the Spirit, this early church. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness, okay? Filled with the Spirit, speaking boldly. They had been arrested, uh, told not to speak anymore, but they continue. They pray and they continue to say, Lord, give us boldness to preach. And then you get to verse 32 and it says, now the full number on the heels of the Spirit-filledness, verse 32, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And let's just pretend right now that we could just pause right there in the middle of verse 32. And we could just say, what is Luke going to tell us after he says, after he mentions that they were of one heart and soul? They're unified. They're filled with the Spirit. They're, they're united in, in heart and soul. And therefore, what is going to happen? What would you anticipate? Hey, they're singing together. They continue to preach. But what does it say? The outflow of that unity, that one, oneness of heart and soul, is at the second part of verse 32, a generosity. They were one heart and soul, comma, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to, that, that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. 
So we see here that what the Holy Spirit does in those who have believed in Jesus is he brings this unity to people through the Spirit, that he brings this unity that where they are open-hearted with one another, their relationships are deepening. But he also shows us in the second part of verse 32 that the Spirit also brings not only unity, but this generosity. They had everything in common. They were open-hearted with one another, and they were open-handed with their stuff. In verse 31, the evidence, the results of being spirit-filled are boldness, the sharing of the gospel. But in uh, verse 32, the results of being spirit-filled are unity and generosity, the sharing of possessions. God's grace had tightened their relationships, but had loosened their relationship with money. They had tightened in their relationship, but they had loosened in their relationship with money. That was the evidence of their being spirit-filled. There's a sociologist that's done a lot of work uh, in the last decade named Rodney Stark. And Rodney Stark talks about the growth of Christianity in the first few centuries of the church. And one of the great lines that Stark, who may be a Christian now, did not... uh, was not a believer, an evangelical believer about 10 years ago, but one of the lines in Stark's work is he says that the early Christians were conservative with their beds and promiscuous with their wallets. Conservative with their beds, but promiscuous with their wallets. Because of what Jesus had done, they had this generosity that sprung up among them to where they took care of one another. Now, some of these people that were gathered in Jerusalem were from other parts of the Mediterranean world, so they didn't have a lot of accommodations and a lot of means as they stayed there at the beginning of Pentecost. But this was no doubt a unified people, a bold people, as well as a generous people. If you look at verse 33, as he goes on to describe this, if you uh, notice in verse 33, there's two greats. It says, the apostles were given great power in their testimony to the resurrection. And then it says, and great grace was upon them all. Grace is God's favor. God's favor was upon them. They had great power. You might want to underline that. And great grace. And then verses 34 through 37, we're going to see great generosity in the example of um, Joseph, or who he becomes known as later, or right here it's mentioned too, but later we meet Barnabas in chapters 9 and chapter 11 as he begins to travel with Paul. So great power, great grace, great generosity, but then we get to chapter 5 and we see great hypocrisy. And then chapter 5, verse 5, as well as chapter 5, verse 11, we see great fear. You might want to underline it again, great fear. Yeah, you can imagine so. And great fear came upon the whole church, verse 11, and upon all who heard these things. So the first thing we have to talk about here this morning is this idea of judgment, that God uh, judges Ananias and Sapphira. And the first thing that we should point out to is, is this doesn't sit well with most of us, with our modern kind of Western mindset. Uh, our We love the idea of a God of love, but a God of judgment, a God who would strike people dead for lying or for disobeying. Uh, We are, our Western, modern uh, sentimentalities have 
objections about that. And we judge that to be primitive. We judge that to be harsh. And now here's, here's the irony of judgment. The minute you say God shouldn't do that, what are you doing? You are judging God. And isn't ironic that we can think as sophisticated, learned people that we can judge God, but God, the creator of all things, shouldn't be able to judge people, to be able to judge us as he wants to. That's ironic, that we feel like we can put him on the stand, but he can't put us on the stand. Very ironic. Second thing that we should notice uh, is that judgment is really unavoidable. We make judgments all the time. We, uh, we make distinctions between what's good and true and beautiful and what's right and wrong. And the minute that you say, hey, I don't think you should tell people what to believe or what's right and wrong, what have you done? You've made a judgment. You've said, you should do this, you should not do this. You've made a distinction. My kids, uh, if they lie to me, there's a consequence. It's a big deal. But what happens if they lie to their mom? Oh, it's an even bigger deal, <laughs> right? I'm not saying it's because she's tougher. I'm saying because I'm defending mom, okay? Hear me correctly here. What happens, what happens, though, if they lie to their teacher, if they lie to an authority outside of our home? The consequences are even greater, right? What happens to you when you tell a, a white lie to a friend? Well, possibly nothing. What happens if you tell a, a lie in your uh, job place to your employer? You could be fired. What happens if you tell a lie as you are under oath? in a court of law. The judgment and the consequence of that gets higher and higher with each authority, does it not? And here in this passage, the judgment God gives is that not that you've held back some property, but that you've lied about it. You've deceived. You've tried to pull one over on the Holy Spirit. Another thing that we should note about judgment is that our uh, repulsion against God judging someone like this is a fairly recent and a fairly modern repulsion. If we, if we go around the world, there are lots of cultures where the idea of a God or the God judging people and striking them dead is, is just kind of everyday thing. They don't really raise an eyebrow about it because, of course, that's what the gods do. So who are we to think in our Western, modern, kind of learned uh, posture that we should have the right view of God and all those other primitive people that think judgment is actually just something right that would be intrinsic in a God that created things? Who are we to say that, hey, your view is narrow, but my view is right? My, my view is in accordance with the way things really should be. Well, that's a very ethnocentric, ethnocentric snobbish way of dealing with the, object, the objections and the uh, conclusions of cultures that differ from us, is it not? Another thing when we think about judgment that we should consider is that what if there is no judgment? What's the problem if there is no judgment? Well, I would offer you this morning that if there is no judgment, the problem with that is that there is no judgment, 
And think about it long enough, I think all of us can find situations in our life, particularly here on earth, where we say, you know, justice wasn't served. They didn't get justice. And for many cultures, as I said before, for many cultures, the idea of a justice finally fully from God is actually a comforting thing, that God's going to sort it all out in the end. If you don't have a God of judgment, you don't have judgment. Therefore, if judgment isn't taken care of on earth, then you might as well take care of it yourself because you can't trust a God in the end to bring final judgment. This is harsh. This seems harsh to us. And yet, it is the way that God, the creator of all things, has said, if you offend me, if you lie to me, if you do not walk in my ways, this is what you deserve. And the truth of it is, it's not just Ananias and Sapphira that deserve instant death, instant judgment. It's all of us who have been apathetic about God, who have snubbed our nose at God, who have said, God, I'll get to you later when I'm a grown-up and when my kids need to go to church. Now, the Bible would say that all of us have sinned, and therefore there's a punishment, there's a right justice that we, are, that we deserve. Another thing we should note about this is that there's no reason to think that Ananias and Sapphira uh, were judged by God, died that day, and were buried, and that they then went to hell. Actually, every indication, it seems to me, is that they were true believers, so they, that they were judged in this life, but that doesn't mean that they went to hell. I think they were legit believers. They were counted among the community here. But God, in this, as this new community is forming, wants to set the stage against this inner corruption so strongly that he judges, judges them immediately and forcefully. Why doesn't God do this today? Maybe he does. There's a passage that we could go to quickly here. I think we have this on the screen. 1 John 5, 16. It talks about John, who's one of the leaders here at this time. It talks about a sin that leads to death. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. In other words, we don't, we're not told what the sin is, but it seems to be that the New Testament teaches that there, there are some sins so heinous, so grievous to God, that he will strike you dead right when you commit that sin in his justice and even in his grace. Now, what are those sins? I can't tell you, but it seems to be that this is one example uh, that would fit that, that there is a sin so grievous that God judges their, them and strikes them dead, maybe not casting them into hell if they're believers, but that they drop dead in the moment. Maybe you think, I, you know, I think, I'm not going to share any, but I, you, you might be able to think of someone that was, that was in a place of sin, of rejecting God so horribly, and then something happened, and you, you wonder, was that God's judgment? Now, don't go out and say, I absolutely emphatically know why that guy died. It was because of this, this, and this, this sin that I know. Okay, don't go all Pat Robertson on us, all right? But there does seem to be, sorry, but there does seem to be this idea that you can sin unto death. The second thing that we need to think about as we look at this passage is, that, is the community that is being protected here. 
God's judgment of this incident shows that God cares about this community, that he cares about the unity and the purity of this new church. And the church is not just an organization that people decided, hey, let's start this new thing. The church is God's creation. As Israel was God's tool and creation in the Old Testament, local churches are God's creation now, and he cares about this thing called the church. It's not a human institution. In fact, it will be described, the church will be described as Christ's bride. Christ's bride that he loves and that he died for and that he wants to protect In fact, in verse 11 is the first use we see of the word church in the book of Acts. God, in this this growth, in this beginning, uh, germinating, developing, planting stage of the church, he is protecting the community from the corruption and the hypocrisy on the inside. And it is a sin of hypocrisy, is it not? The judgment is not there. They're not, Ananias and Sapphira are not uh, judged because they, they held back a piece of the land that they should, they were required to give it all. In fact, it says, as, as uh, Peter talks to him, it says, you weren't required to give any of it. But the fact that you in pretense said, hey, I'm giving all of it, just like Barnabas did, is, is, is saying that your, your gift was not to God, your gift was to yourself to make yourself look good, to get the accolades that this guy Joseph or Barnabas had been getting. The sin is not that they held back part of their gift. The sin is that they lied to the Holy Spirit, verse 3, that they lied to God, verse 5, and that they tested the Spirit of the Lord, verse 9. That's why they were judged. They didn't have to give any of it, but it was the hypocrisy, it was the pretense that God hated. And it's interesting, and we should note here, that the, God's first judgment on the church was not for immorality, but hypocrisy. Not for bad things, but good things done badly. The first time in Acts we see God really trying to purify and judge and, and, and make his people what he wants them to be, it's not because they were immoral. It was because of their hypocrisy. It because, it's because they weren't being honest with who they really were. Boy, that should hit us hard this morning. Because if there's anything that any of us have struggled in church, it's about the masks that we wear and that we find others wearing. And appearance and pretense is a killer to true, genuine community, is it not? And Ananias didn't have it, Ananias and Sapphira didn't have it all together. They didn't want to give. But oh, if they would have just gone to their small group and said, you know, we, we, we're, we're so jealous of Barnabas. We're really struggling with envy here. Forgive me, Barnabas for one, to have the accolades that you did. They, they could have been healed. They could have been restored. They could have been protected, and the church could have been protected. Here's what I know about each of us in this room. Here's what I know about the guy up here talking to you. We're messed up. We do not have it all together. And to put on the appearance that we do is a sham. 
And it also keeps us from one another. It also distances us from one another. You know what? Often as a pastor, you have people come come into your office. They want to get counsel. They want to talk to you about certain things. You know, when people talk to me about their struggles, what they're hurting about, what they're really, what difficulty is really within them, the sin that they're tempted to, do you know that my rarely, rarely is my temptation to judge them. But almost always, my heart is drawn to people that, that, that meet me for lunch or come into my office and say, I'm really struggling with this. It actually brings an intimacy and a unity that wasn't there before. How? Not through strength, but through weakness, through confession. Think about it like an AA group or a 12, maybe you've been through a 12-step program. You know, no one sits around at a 12-step program or a recovery group, AA or whatever, and says, yeah, I'm better than that guy. That's like the rule number one. We're all broken. We're all on a path to recovery here. We're all in need of healing. That's what it would be for the church. That's what it should be for the church. But what we struggle with is appearance and pretense. And oh, isn't it compounded in Collin County where things look good and where the picture of me and my family looks perfect. Everything looks nice. The house is new and everything's new what's that the dog looks regal in my christmas card everything looks great in one 250th of a second that that picture was taken and that we have money or we at least want to appear like we have as much money as my neighbor does so we'll buy more stuff and and do more stuff as dave ramsey has famously said we spend money we don't have to buy things we don't need to impress people that we don't like but it's this appearance to appear as rich as other people, to appear as pretty as the other moms, to appear as successful as the other dads. Appearance is a killer to us personally, internally, and it's, all, it's also a killer to community. So the passage this morning teaches us, take off the mask. Man, I don't want us to feel like we come to Centennial Church and we have to have it all together that you can come, the word that's been coming to my mind over the past few weeks of our gatherings, not only here this morning, but our gatherings and community groups would be a refuge and a sanctuary. You know why we need to come together? Because we're broken. Because we need to be healed by the common graces of God through sacrament and through the word of God and through the fellowship and the confessing to one another. There's a passage in James, James chapter 5, verse 16. James says this, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. What would it look like to be a church, to be a community where we confess our sins to one another? That might be hard, but that might be beautiful, and it might be healing. I had a wonderful experience about a week ago where I was with some guys, our elders, and we shared our idols, the things that continually attack us, the things that creep up, 
to take first place, to take center place over Jesus. And if you've never had the blessing and the healing of confession, man, I encourage you this morning to push in deeper to community. And if you can't be honest with a brother or a sister, at least be honest to the Holy Spirit. Because the lesson of this deal is you lied to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit nudges us. Jesus taught us in John chapter 14 through 16 that one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of sin. And I, I want to encourage us to, to be sensitive to when we feel those nudges and we sense uh, God is pushing on, he's shining the spotlight on this darkness in my heart, to confess that right then to God and perhaps confess that to a brother and sister. What a powerful community we could be if we could take off our masks and say, I'm broken, I'm tempted here, I am hurting here. Wouldn't that be beautiful? It'll be hard, but wouldn't that be beautiful? Will you pray with me? As we pray, I wanna ask you this morning, what would it look like for us to confess our sins to one another? And let me challenge you with this. What is it that the Holy Spirit has placed on your heart, even right now as you've been listening, even right now as we've been looking at this passage, is there something that the Holy Spirit, a burden that he has placed on you right now that you need to go and make that right? You need to confess that to someone and let the power of that sin be nullified through your confession. You need to share that burden with a brother and sister. And I'm gonna be at the back as we sing these next song and some of our other prayer team members and elders will be back there. If you wanna pray, if you would like to be prayed for, find us in the back as we sing these next songs. We'll be, having, we'll be holding candles and we would love to pray with you. What would it look like for you this week to confess your sins to one another? What is it the Holy Spirit has placed upon your heart that you need to do business about even right now this morning? Or maybe a phone call you need to make, a text you need to send, an appointment that you need to make to confess to someone else. The Lord, as I was preparing this message, the Lord shined the light on one thing that I needed to do. Maybe there's something for you. Holy Spirit, we ask you right now to illuminate areas of our lives that are not in accordance with your will, ways that we grieve you, ways that we mar the bride of Christ. And we thank you, God, that your promise to us, your sons and daughters, is that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that we might face death in this life, but we will never face the judgment of hell because of the blood of Jesus. So we're free to confess. We don't have hell to face. We don't have the justice of God to face because of the blood of Jesus. We can be free 
with our temptations and our sins and our failures because you've covered us with the blood of Jesus. God, empower us to take off our masks. Make us a place of genuine community. We ask these things in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.